Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello again. Thanks for coming back. Episode nine already. Doesn't time fly? In this episode is the second half of my conversation with Dr. Joanna Paul about ventilation, so I hope you guys are looking forward to that. Just before we get into it, a couple of little updates about pre-med, if that's alright. Um, thanks to those that commented on the ECG syllabus that I published in a draft form last month. Um, it's now closed for comments and I'll be publishing the final version soon, which leads me into talking about our face-to-face events. Um, clearly with COVID and the new tier restrictions, um, some of those might be affected, so in the next few weeks, I'll be revising all of our COVID-19 policies and procedures. Exciting job. And um, for those of you who have bought tickets, thank you very much. And please rest assured that if the events are affected, you will get a full refund, no questions asked. Um, finally, you may have seen on social media and posting things that we have a new cheat sheet on order. Um, so we've got an airway card coming. If you haven't seen that, do check it out on the website. Um, it should be delivered within the next few days and pre-orders will be available shortly um, and there's a few other new things coming up on the website soon so please do check that out right enough from me well enough from me in this intro and now to me in the conversation with Joanna Paul cheers guys Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. It's, a, it's an interesting, and it might just be me, but I never grasped the concept of this mucus plugging thing. And that, again, in, in ICU, I saw a lot with the chest physios where they'll come around routinely and, and do mm. kind of... 20 minutes of aggressive chest physio with patients mm. that are just tubes um, and it's that because like I say I, I just never had that concept so so what you're saying is basically the um, some sort of mucus will kind of plug off a section of the lung and then that just yep. means that percentage of the lung is unable to ventilate or oxygenate yeah and it's usually the area that you want which is the bottom yeah fine so basically trying to get patients to cough <laughs> yeah 
basically it sounds silly but like honestly that's what's got me out of trouble so many times the, ch- the chest physio has been my best friend on more than one emergency occasion and it's just so effective and you don't damage anyone getting them to do it so I totally advise that and yeah. a lot of your patients will have chest infections and this will be a problem so that is one tip um, the positioning is crucial as well you just need them sat up as much as your scoops and whatever allow even if it's um tilting at an angle like 30 degrees if they can't actually break the bed if you see what i mean yeah and i, I think that's another one isn't it so we pre-hospitally historically there's been a big thing about um immobilizing people and we yeah. used to love immobilizing people for um you know they might have a bit of neck pain immobilized better safe than sorry um yeah but as it's been evaluated more and more certainly recently um we're starting to find these kind of complications and i think one of the possibly underrecognized but really important ones is like you're saying um ventilation and the the thing i i see you see it less now but um, a kind of uh, a situation we're often faced with is a patient that might be involved in a kind of high-speed blunt trauma and they have mm-hmm. um, the potential for a neck injury or a spinal injury, mm-hmm. although no signs or symptoms of it, um, but also probably a significant risk of um, lung or kind of chest trauma, um, yeah. tension pneumothoraces and stuff as well. And mm-hmm. um, you can kind of be faced with the decision of do I um, do the what is thought to be the safer thing and, and immobilise them flat? Um, or do I prioritise their chest over their possible spinal injury? Um, mm-hmm. So you know, in in that kind of in in that kind of situation, how important is it to to optimise their ventilation? Because my argument is that I'd rather have them sitting up and sitting still. Um, yeah. But you know, how how dangerous is it to lie these p- patients flat with the possible underlying lung problems? So it's way more of a problem in obese patients or patients with like distended tense abdomens where you know it's going to be pressing up and you you get you'll get a feel for them. But basically, if I take a patient who's quite large and I take them from, you know, sit them up on bed, right, lie down and have your anaesthetic, their sats will go from 100 percent to 89, 90. Mm. Um in a young slim person you have less of an issue but probably the easiest thing to explain is just like in numbers so I'm sorry that it's numbers but like it will be meaningful is so at the top of your lung your oxygen in your blood leaving the top of your lung the tiny bit of blood that gets there is 17 kilopascals at the bottom of your lung it's it's about 12 um but you don't get much you know so basically your ventilation is really good at the top um but at the bottom is where all your blood is going so even though there's less air getting down there because it's like a bit more squashed than um gravity um your blood's picking up all the oxygen rather than you know um the tops which are just running empty so when you lie down you lose all your sort of gravity and everything squashes the bottom and they just desaturate like an absolute stone and we put loads of peep on. You can't do this. So standing up, by the way, gives you about five of peep or four or five of peep. And you lose it when you lie flat. And in theatre, I'd probably be giving these really obese people a peep of seven or eight mm. plus just for being large when I lie them down. So when you've got your spinal injuries and you can't sit them up, I mean, A, obviously, we should all try and clear things if we can more than maybe we have done historically. Mm-hmm. Um 
but we get all these head injuries and spinal injuries in A&E, you know, for us as well. And for working in neurocritical care, they've all got horrible spinal injuries. And I don't know if you guys have the ability to do this. We just tilt, we keep the bed flat and tilt it. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's um sometimes you have to be a bit MacGyvery about it. But mm. <laughs> so I tend to and in. It's another thing, and we we get onto resuscitation or post resuscitation care if we can. But I know, so like post resuscitation care patients obviously have some degree of ischemic uh, kind of brain insult, and so in mm. those patients I do the same thing. But my tip pre hospitally um, is so we use like scoop stretches, and I'll put mm-hmm. a seat belt, I'll loop it through the bottom of the scoop, um, so that the the foot of the scoop is secured to the bed, and okay. then tilt the back of the bed up. So you, you basically have the bed tilted up and the scoop lying at an angle across the top of it. Perfect, yeah. If, so if, that's, if people yeah, do that, go. firstly, make sure you follow your own guidelines. I don't want to take responsibility <laughs> for people's MacGyvering, but obviously seatbelts become extremely important. Um, yeah. But yeah, that in general, that kind of, if you have to lie someone flat, don't lie them flat is flat, flat. My, take, yeah. my take home thing and it, it's quite stark how quickly it improves your oxygen if that's your problem it really improves your oxygen really quickly honestly so I, I had a patient um a few weeks ago who he was kind of his his numbers weren't too bad but he looked really unwell kind of septic unwell mm. and I think he probably had COVID actually to be fair but um he he had Everyone's kind of favorite well, he, he kind of, so, you know, he's pyrexic and he had really wet lungs with um, like beelines on ultrasounds, kind of really crackly yep. chest, poor sats, um, a productive cough, but it was a weak cough. And yep. he had quite a big abdomen as well. And um, although his numbers weren't too bad, he just looked knackered and his work of breathing, he's, he's working hard to breathe and just looked really tired of it. And he actually <laughs> went from spontaneously breathing at kind of appropriate rate and um, with no real concerns to... Um, we lay him flat because his blood pressure is a bit low and he just mm-hmm. went apneic completely. Um, and, oh, you know, he had some effort in breathing, but essentially none at all. Um, yeah. And we literally, like you say, just kind of sat him up and he was able to spontaneously breathe again. Um, mm. And it's, it's a kind of rarity you see those patients, but it's such a good example of that, of that concept of, um, you know, he was kind of at the edge of his own physiology. Um, and yeah. just that added insult of lying flat just really no- was enough to knock it. it makes such a big difference like I won't ex- sit here and explain the physiology textbooks to you but it is so stark and even like the facts so two-thirds of your ventilation volume is coming from your diaphragm which yeah. is assisted by gravity if you've got a, a large belly particularly a large belly <laughs> yeah. pressing all those just stopping the diaphragm kind of you know it's having to exert more power to kind of get you a lung volume it's just not going to do it and it's just the easiest fix I just um so that's one thing and then because I think the other question that people had on Twitter was oh you know you just keep adding oxygen like I must emphasize of course you can never have like too much oxygen and that kind of you know let's ignore all the kind of hyperoxia guidelines but in theory if you're hypoxic you can't be given too much oxygen um and you can keep adding stuff in my experience of this exact situation on all my patients is it does diddly squat because the problem is rarely that suddenly they need that extra two liters the problem is usually they've either clapped something their diaphragm's knackered or you've led them flat and i think your so even like your 15 liters rebreathe bag which everyone talks about so when we are taking a breath in 
in in normal um life your sort of inspiratory flow rate is about 10 to 20 liters mm-hmm. um a second it's really fast but your when you're trying really hard it can be up to 30 so even if you're giving someone 15 liters of rebreathe oxygen they're still having to meet their 30 liters a second requirement they're still having to suck normal air in from the surrounding so you're actually only delivering maybe 50 60 percent oxygen so your extra two liters um by all means put it on but i'm not convinced it's going to help you more than sitting them up getting rid of the sputum and doing that other stuff as well so i think um yeah it's just really worth remembering the simple stuff works so well (laughs) Yeah, and I, I was kind of, you know, following that discussion, I was I did a bit of reading around that, and there's a good episode which I'll link um, by guys at Rebel, Rebel EM, Rebelcast, I think, mm-hmm. American, they they podcast anyway, um, about high flow nasal cannula. Because I know we mentioned or I mentioned that um, in hospital we have these optoflow things, which are yeah, it's high flow, yeah, isn't it? They, kind of... that is brilliant high flow. It's like forty sixty liters. It's brilliant. But the the important point, as you mentioned, is it is heated and humidified. And it yeah. was it was interesting, um, and this they explained it well in this podcast. But the the added problems that you get with high flow kind of dry oxygen is that your you know your body then has to heat and humidify it itself, and it can cause it can irritate the lung and cause kind of other problems as well. So it's not a mm. you know it's, it's not, not a, a good thing to do for long periods of time. But obviously, where needs must. But I think with all these things, it's as long as people understand how it's working and what it can do you know we're all trained professionals we can work out a bit more of a risk benefit of what we're doing so I think that's always it's just nice to know how stuff works I think yeah I think the other thing that I've found and certainly so so with my role now we, we have CPAP and I, I don't have a great deal of experience mm. with it um, I like CPAP so do I after my, my a few recent <laughs> experiences with it but you kind of you know as, as you have these more interventions available um I think it's important as well that just because you escalate up to something doesn't mean you can't then de-escalate as well. And, you know, I've, I've had patients where I've tried CPAP and it's just not worked at all for them. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of have to just accept that it's not going to benefit that patient. Go, and... go with exactly. You go with the human being in front of you. Like everything can work really well in textbooks. Like, so for example, high flow is amazing, like in the right patients. And um, you can do whole operations on it, apneic. The patient doesn't need to breathe for like 40 minutes and you can just do it on the high flow because it's 60 liters and it does this wobble pendulum effect that gets all you know keeps oxygenating you even while you're not breathing it's brilliant it does not work in fat people when you lie them down it just doesn't because that so it doesn't matter that you've got 60 liters on it's just going to stop so you know because the lungs have gone at the bottom so that was really easy for me to see by keep using it so just sit them up it really helps and um the other thing was that uh what's i going to say so I had one lady who had a, a patent. This is really niche, but it's interesting. So I'll <laughs> tell you. So she had like a patent foramen ovale, which is not that uncommon, but it's like um, 10 to 30 percent of the population. But um, and that's a connection in between your two atria, the small chambers of your heart. Um, but in some people, it can be quite a big defect. And your the other thing with high flow is that adds about five of people, you know, CPAP, their equivalent. Um and it was enough to give her uh, a right to left shunt because the blood was finding it easier to go from right to left atrium than it yeah. was to go through the lungs with five of PEEP. Um, so I was just like, why would you deoxygenate when I give you high flow? Why would you do that? That is the most stupid thing ever because you were fine on four litres. 
And actually, it feels very wrong to take off your high flow and swap it back to nasal cannula. But that's what I did and it worked. So I think what you're saying about like the de-escalation thing is if you think there is an immediate link between what you've done or it's not working, like there may be something else going on that's, you know, so um, don't be scared of stuff. Why um, it is niche, but I find it interesting because when I did my <laughs> intensive care placement, we had exactly the same patient and she was transferred from a different ITU to the one I was at because yeah. of the complexity, like because of a PFO and she was really anxious which was exacerbating her right to left shunt so she needed yeah what did she she needed some sort of um surgery but couldn't yeah. be um induced because of this shunt so she needed that solving yeah. first what is the physiology that causes that right to left shunt and how do you reduce it basically it's it's just a pressure differential so if like you are fluid like blood going down pipes and you can pick the course of least resistance, you'll go down that one. So if the pressure uh, in your left atrium is lower than the pressure in your lung, what the uh, blood is gonna decide to do is go from the right atrium, nip into the left atrium, rather than going through the right side of the heart, um, because it's just a a pressure gradient. So it's in people with pulmonary hypertension, usually it's a problem, but you are contributing to thoracic pressure if you put on CPAP, high flow, um, or positive pressure ventilation. So you can just make it go, no thanks, lungs look like hard work, I'm just going to nip across the bridge. It's as simple as that. It's um, But it's annoying then because none of your blood is being oxygenated. It's just skipping back into the circulation without yeah. any lung entry whatsoever. So you desaturate really badly. And in that situation, adding more oxygen does not help at all because there is no blood in the lungs anyway. Yeah, which kind of takes us in a in a real roundabout way back to the back to the <laughs> mucus plugging thing, doesn't it? And it's it's yeah. you know, we discussed it in this COVID episode we did before, but this um concept of like a VQ mismatch, if you're not Oh, if you're not um, perfusing a section of lung, it doesn't really yeah. matter how much you oxygenate it. You know, this kind of shunt physiology, you kind of... So if, if, if the patient's problem is that they're hypoxemic because of a shunt, then adding oxygen is not really going to do a lot because no. it's not an oxygen problem. No, like you could literally have, say you have like 2 million alveoli, but you're only perfusing one. Even if you've got 100% oxygen in that one alveoli, you're still going to have just no oxygen in your blood because yeah everything else is you know dead to the world so i think it's it's much easier to see when you're like measuring it properly in theater or like you can see different changes um but like when you just think of it like that you need to optimize blood pressure uh perfusion as well as oxygenation to get oxygen into blood like it's it's quite simple when you just like think about it simply i need to get this gas molecule into this blood cell like I need to put them in the same place. <laughs> and I think, so taking it back to kind of the lessons of pre-hospital care, I think the the simple interventions are always the best. And, you know, especially I find that now that you have a sick patient, a simple intervention can make them a lot better. It's it's probably the most satisfying. But, um, it's so satisfying, yeah. yeah. And it's the same, like, even on critical care when they're on 100% ventilated. You know, I can, I can do fancy stuff, but actually I'll try the simple stuff first because nine times out of ten, if anything's going to work, it's something like that. Yeah, and I think the it, it's useful for to as a take home point for pre hospital care because classically we're taught that if a patient's sick, you basically lie them on the floor um, mm. because they need some sort of resuscitating, and we and that's where we resuscitate people. But you know, interesting. And I think it it becomes it's something I had to kind of challenge of my own training when I did my critical mm. care training because it it becomes so ingrained 
that you know in all of your ospies and, and exams and stuff patients really sick lying on the floor because you might have to manage their airway or whatever but actually yeah. it's, it's kind of counterintuitive but makes a lot of sense like you say to to you know if someone's really sick ventilation or breathing wise um sit them up and see how they are um yeah and I, I mean you're right you're in a you know a more scary environment and you don't know what your a b and c are going to be doing um, and obviously you just need to access them like my idea of hell is like trying to find sort something out if someone's like curled around the bottom of their banisters i just literally hats off to you guys like, <laughs> i can't even cope in the field <laughs> um so it, you know it's a really different skill set um but yeah, I think if B is your primary concern, B is fixed so much by just like a bit of positioning change. And actually, there are ways of helping people sit up, even with pillows or supporting them, that if you need to lie them down quickly, you can. Um, and when I put people off to sleep in theatre, even though I know I'm imminently going to have to sort out their airway, if they're big, particularly, I will put them to sleep set up. Yeah, and actually, I when I did my theatre rotation, I, I, I did a few... Um, um kind of bariatric lists mm. and scary hey <laughs> scary yeah but also i mean scary to see how quickly they desaturate like you say but also the um consultant i was with chewed a lot of them sitting almost bolt upright um, yeah and that's what we do it's so much because otherwise you just don't get any oxygenation yeah um which actually it, a, another kind of pre-hospital thing is we, we talk about this ear to sternal notch positioning and again i'll put mm. a link in, in our notes but um even using kind of ramping so you can use like blankets and pillows and whatever else to ramp people yeah. up and it kind of optimizes your intubation view as well but i think the yeah. the added benefits of like you're saying and the kind of ventilation that the positional effects on ventilation are really beneficial yeah i've never even thought of that pre-hospitally and it's a lifesaver there are people whose airways you just would never manage if they were not we have something called an oxford help pillow um but all it is is a ramp <laughs> I mean, that's the um, kind of thing we need, to be honest. Yeah. I think there's a niche in the market for someone to invent a Yeah, we need a can... pre-hospital help pillow. Honestly. But I go to a lot of patients that um, have really difficult intubation view or difficult to manage airway or, you know, some kind of complication. And generally now, my first intervention is to ramp them up um, significantly. Um, and it almost, you know, 95% of the time, it improves your view to a fairly easy intubation view or... or um, you know, makes the eye gel function a lot better. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely a good to kind of takeaway point. Yeah, you need less pressure to get the same volume. Yeah. So it's just, it's much nicer on the lung and it makes your eye gel, it doesn't matter so much if the eye gel isn't sat quite right. If you're only having to do low pressures for it, it's much harder when you're having to like squeeze a lot because they're, they're so tight chested from whatever. Yeah. Um, it will just pop out. That's my, that's what happens when I do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads us nicely on to the, uh, post cardiac arrest patient mm -hmm. um so i'll kind of it, it, it's like we alluded to before you know generally for ambulance staff um outside of a hem service um, the patients that were positive pressure ventilating a post cardiac arrest most of them um and so um i think ventilation intra arrest is comparatively simple because we, we tend to use a fixed rate um be careful of hyperventilation, obviously, but I think our machines are pretty useful. So we have a metronome that tells us kind of chest ah, compression. That's handy. Yeah, so it tells us chest compression rate, but also tells you whether to vent. It, you can set the ventilation rate, but either ten a minute with um, a secure airway, or it will tell you to do thirty to two. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So that's really helpful. <laughs> intra arrest. Um, yeah. But post. Yeah, there's too much arrest. else going on. Yeah. 
postcard is not as easy because obviously we're not using a fixed rate um so yeah. obviously i'm sure you go to a lot of um get bleeped to a lot of cardiac arrest in the hospital mm. so mm. when when you're with that patient that's just been resuscitated and now they're post-resuscitation um yeah. how do you optimize their ventilation for that recovery period or that initial recovery phase so um we just aim for normal so i'd aim for an end tidal co2 of four and a half to six and a half Obviously, once I took the patient back to ITU, I can start to do gases and adjust how I need to. But I would be the same as you up on a ward. I wouldn't have blood gases, you know, every set, every few hours or whatever. So I would literally just target a normal end tidal CO2 of four and a half to six and a half. Um, normal, you know, sats of 94 to 98, um, unless there was another reason I wasn't that worried. Um, and so I would usually... I would start around a respiratory rate of 14, I think. If I already knew they had a respiratory cause of arrest, they might need a bit of a higher rate. I might start on 20, but I, I just titrate really to the end tidal CO2. That kind of will tell you um, how fast you need to go. And I would use a tidal volume of six mils per kilo. Okay. If um, I had something that would let me set it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fine. Are you routinely paralyzing patients post ROSC? No. No. So so typically when like you we intubate a ROSC, most of the time they're either GCS3 or slightly chain stoking. We try not to paralyze in the moment, even anesthetically. Like if I need to intubate, it's the only way to intubate, I would paralyze them. But the thing is you really want to know what their neurological function is like. Mm -hmm. Um and you lose you can't really get rid of your paralysis for a good hour. So it's quite nice to kind of see what they're doing. Um, if their ventilation was problematic and they were fighting the ventilator, or I couldn't get the volumes that I needed and it was affecting my gas, you know, my CO2 and my oxygen, I might consider it. Um, but generally speaking, no. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and I ask because um, obviously it's not a standard paramedic intervention, but we we can paralyse patients that have, have been intubated and obviously the HEM yeah. services will do that as well. Um, yeah. So we wouldn't routinely paralyse, but um, kind of my practice is that I would be more keen to paralyse than not, mm -hmm. partly on the basis that the um, kind of neurological decision-making is not really mm -hmm. our job. Um, mm -hmm. partly because by the time we've That's got to hospital yeah partly also because by the time we've got to hospital and handed over um we use rock uranium so that yeah, is yeah. is kind of That's about the right timing and and but the the main reason uh when i've kind of thought about it in in depth is the our ventilators are not great um you know they yeah. they, they do the job but they're not as uh we, we don't have oxy logs like most hospitals do and you know that we can only program certain things so we in my service, you have a power pack ventilator, so you can set yep. a rate and a volume, but you can't change yep. the IE ratio. Um, yeah, you can't do anything fancy. And you don't know how calibrated it is as well, really, because you don't, our machines, although I think we're going to upgrade the monitors so we'll get better feedback, but we don't, you know, our, our capnogram will tell us a rate, but we don't yep. know the actual physiological tidal volume we're delivering. Yeah, you know what it's set to, but not, yeah, okay. Yeah, so so I mean that's kind of the partly the reason. Um, but so so what I you're think... kind of saying is, you know, it's, it's not a it's not a routine intervention. But if if you need to do it to optimize ventilation, it's I do. And also the thing is, I've completely suddenly realised you're because I'm not pre-hospital. I'm you know, if I was um, 
at an equestrian event yeah. <laughs> and this happened to me in a field and I needed to safely transport a patient on a ventilator to hospital in a bumpy ambulance you would paralyze um and this is because it keeps your airway safe they're not going to cough out your tube you just know they're going to be stable their blood pressure is not going to be shooting up through the air and affecting their head and you know so in that context where you are having to transport someone and it's in a in a bit of a you know um jungle space then yes of course you would paralyze and like if i'm taking patients to ct scan which i consider feral i um (laughs) i would i would paralyze so you're completely right yeah um cool and so so say you've got this post ross patient um i'm guessing you'd put them on a ventilator and Mm -hmm. um so so you mentioned your kind of standard rate is, is 14 depending on the the kind of physiology um, yeah. What what are your standard ventilation settings and and what you're kind of looking at to adjust that and how quickly do you adjust it? How long do you to watch and wait all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So fundamentally, say like I've got a patient in ED and you know I've received them tubed and I just need to like take them up to the unit, but I don't know how long it's going to be and I just need some like standard settings. I'm I'll probably start with a tiny volume of like near to 500 probably just under like often you don't have enough markings but like vaguely between 400 and 500 yeah um a rest rate of 15 and on hours you can set a peep but i would leave it at the the automatic setting which is a peep of five and mm-hmm. it will be volume delivered most of our um things yeah. are volume delivered i think you can have a pressure limit so we definitely know that above 30 is like scary times but um you don't set the other pressures yourself. Uh, so respirate 14, tidal volume, 400 for a lady, 500 for a bloke-ish. Um, and I will titrate the oxygen to whatever their stats are, aiming for sort of 94-ish, unless there's a particular reason I want something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then titrate to CO2. So quite often on that, the CO2 will climb, at which point I'll say, you know what, we need to go up a respirate, maybe two to four at a time. You know, if they're on 14, try 18. And how, you know, how, say, say 14 and the CO2 is going up a little bit, you might go up to 16, 18. How long do you sit yep. and watch that for? Like, how long would you expect to start to see a change in their CO2? Um, uh, within a minute or two. Fine. As long as it starts falling, you're just kind of like, right, I'll look at it again in a couple of minutes. Um, but yeah, it's not likely to suddenly be two before you've like checked again. <laughs> like it's, you know start seeing something in maybe two minutes probably achieved your sort of home your sort of new level by about 10 minutes um but it's not so quick that you you know blink and you miss it yeah yeah okay so so i had a patient um recently who was post rosk and he it so it turned out he he had a um he had a uh, vf arrest but it was due mm-hmm. to kind of myocardial scar tissue type thing rather than an occlusion so as soon as he was rosked okay. He was basically fine. He he went dynamically. Alive. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, his brain—he was pretty obtunded because he was in cardiac arrest for about half an hour. But his heart mm. was pretty healthy, and his hemodynamics were really good. And um, he had what I would call a very keen brainstem because he was like, when he, the witnesses said he was breathing in cardiac yeah. arrest, and um, the crew that were there before me said he was spontaneously breathing intra arrest, um, yeah. with their CPR. And so post Rosk, he was ventilating really well. Um, yeah. So I did paralyze him and, and sedated him, and and I did the same as you. So I set he was a he's a big bloke, kind of hundred hundred and ten kilos probably, and I set his total volume is about five hundred, and rate kind of fourteen fifteen, and yeah. Um, 
his CO2 just kind of climbed and I was kind of chasing up and I got to a rate of about 18, 20 and then yeah. was trying to dial up the tidal volume and yeah. I just couldn't really get on top of it. And in the end, we went back to hand ventilation with the with the manual resuscitator, which okay. was effective. Um, so I just wonder like how high, because obviously if you go up too much on the respirate, you're just, you're not allowing sufficient time to ventilate off CO2. So yeah. how high do you go on the respirate? Do you have a cap on that? Do you start to increase the tidal volume? Like what kind of other things can you do with that? Yeah. So um, I'm not quoting a guideline here. I'm quoting myself, but it's not, you know, out of sync with what everyone does. Yeah. But fundamentally, if you're somewhere where it's kind of you're kind of bridging to getting to somewhere sort of like safe and sensible, it's I personally find it more effective um, to increase the tidal volume so I think once I'm starting to get to a rate of 20 I'm like right I'm going to add 50 to the tidal volume um so if I start on 500 I might go for 550 or even 600 particularly in a big bloke because uh even our evidence says six to eight mils per kilo so if you're doing eight mils per kilo and they're 80 uh kilos that's a tidal volume of like 640 yeah 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 I mean I don't know I'm um, disagreeing with you but yeah (laughs) No, no, it is a bigger tidal. <laughs> so, volume. yeah. So I'd go for the tidal. I, we all find that increasing the tidal volume, I think, gets you results faster than changing the rate. Um, but we know that tidal volumes can induce lung injury. So I think I would go up to about a rate of twenty-ish, um, and then start if CO two is the problem, um, try and increase um, tidal volume, and that might mean they actually need more paralysis. So some people seem to burn through rock in about ten minutes. And there must be some genetic thing in their liver because it will be the kind of thing I've stuck the tube in, gave them a decent amount of rock. And 15 minutes later, the surgeons are trying to get through the abdominal muscles and they're like, he's not relaxed. And you're like, I just gave it. Yeah, yeah, um, there are definitely people like that, particularly if they've taken loads of amphetamines. But normal people seem to genetically vary. So um, sometimes reparalyzing can help. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think of that, actually, because you just kind of think... Um, you just kind of think, oh, a good half an hour, 40 minutes, I'll be fine. No, um, sometimes it's not. And the only other thought, and the times that my CO2 goes up, I've inevitably stuck the tube too far in and I'm only ventilating one lung. So even though I think I'm trying to get uh, my 500 total volume, you're just getting it off one lung. So you've still got the other lung sat there with loads of carbon dioxide accumulating and going back into the bloodstream. So it's always worth checking tube length. It's like really simple. But the number of times I've done it, and I have no excuse. <laughs> and, and when you're moving patients around, it does slip in and out. And yeah. people always like stuff it in a bit far out of sort of security for their own peace of mind. Um, so sometimes, if you know that it was really decently in, withdrawing it a centimeter can help. Yeah, nice one. Cool. Um, thanks for that. So, so yeah, so that's kind of ventilation post resuscitation. Um, my mm-hmm. other kind of question around that um, is about. Um, ABG versus N-tidal, um, sorry, yes. arterial CO2 versus N-tidal CO2, which we, we've kind of discussed before. And I know, so like the textbook answer is that um, your N-tidal would be about 0.5 kilopascals lower than arterial CO2. Yeah. Um, so I tend to look for kind of 4 to 5.5 as a rough, appropriate yeah. N-tidal. But um, obviously the CO2 has got to go from the blood through lung to get out to be expired and, and picked up by a capnogram so um how does uh kind of lung pathology affect that so 
I'm, I'm trying to get a, like an AA ratio, AA gradient type thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, if someone's got really sick lungs from asthma or COPD, and I'm trying to avoid talking about COVID ever, um, but, you know, these kind of big primary lung pathologies, how does that affect the difference between your arterial CO2 and your end tidal? And do we need to consider that when we're ventilating people? Uh, maybe a little bit. So um, our experience of uh, when you get a big gap, basically, between what the alveolar blood is and the arterial is it's usually a blood supply problem. So basically, the, the alveolar units for CO2 extraction just stack. The more alveoli you get, you push blood to, the more CO2 you get rid of. So if your cardiac output, as we all know, when you're in a rest, your end tidal is probably a bit crap, um, unless you're doing good CPR, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but So literally, the more lung you can perfuse, the more CO2 you get rid of. So the better your blood pressure or your cardiac output, just the more blood is being sent to the top of the lungs and you're stacking those units for CO2 excretion. Mm-hmm. So... Um, when I've had a big CO2 gap, the patient has had a crap cardiac output um, and usually need more filling in my context of surgery. So put it in the context of whatever the patient's underlying pathology is. Are they likely to be underfilled? Often um, CO2 improves with their blood pressure. You know, that time when I'm not watching and the blood pressure has gone to like 70 and the CO2 will be like 3.5 and then I'll change the <laughs> ventilation and then I'll realise what the actual problem is. And as soon as you fix their blood pressure, your CO2 comes back to a normal number. Um, so that can be worth considering. I think, though, when you don't have blood gases, you can't do that. And I've definitely been in situations and I just go by the end tidal CO2. Um, and sometimes I think yeah, you know what, their blood pressure is really low. This is probably underrepresenting what their true CO2 is. I might sort of in my head add an extra one or something. But I think that's all you can do. Without gases, you can't be truly accurate. But it's more a blood pressure, a cardiac output thing uh, than a consolidation thing, I would say. It's normally a blood supply problem. Fine, cool. Cheers for that. Um, nice one. So I think we've done post-resuscitation to death, if you'll excuse the pun. Yeah. but. Um, my, my last kind of question then is about innovation and stuff. And I, I, I know you don't have um, kind of classic FEM experience, but obviously mm. you have some pre-hospital care stuff. And mm. um, hopefully you've got a fair idea of what, what we do kind of, or the level of care that we provide with the kind of equipment that we provide it with. Um, yeah. So in that context, what, in in terms of innovation, what if, if there could be one pre-hospital thing that you think we should have that would benefit patients the most in in terms of our our ability to ventilate them safely what do you think that would be help hello (laughs) this ramp some kind of easily used ramping thing that would improve your airway and your ventilation and was easy um i think we spoke a bit i think online about circuits i think my preference for a water circuit is purely because that's what i use in theater and i think i must emphasize that when it comes to anything you're always better with the equipment that you know well than like trying something gimmicky for the first time always just go back to basics um bipap so bipap is obviously really useful and we obviously titrate it um, in hospital to a blood gas and the difference by the way between BiPAP and CPAP just for anyone that doesn't know is that BiPAP is just bi-level it's two levels of pressure so you have an 
uh, a push in pressure that's in spiritual of say like 15 and then a bottom constant pressure that's five this is all your centimeters of water stupid unit again um and that's basically giving you a tidal volume according to how tight or loose your lungs are um and it's good for clearing CO2 because it gives you a bit of a push in, which helps your work of breathing when you're really knackered, uh, which improves your CO2 clearance, which um, is good for your COPD and stuff. Um, the difference is that your CPAP just provides one pressure all the time, which is a pressure of usually like base level five, but you goes up and up. And that's obviously really good for um, it just splints open the bottom of your lung and stops them collapsing, which we've spoken about to death. So it's good to offset lying people um down but um it's quite hard work because you have to breathe against it it's quite hard to exhale against peep you can do it actually if you ever uh, find yourself with a valve available that you're allowed to use it on try and it's like blowing through a tube it's actually quite hard to breathe through so it's quite tiring um and it doesn't assist your breath in um so it's always there and it improves the sort of opening of your lungs but it doesn't help you breathe in so it's not going to help you if your problem is that you're tired um but so bi-level is useful but the only thing i would say about it is i only know how to change settings on it when i have a blood gas i was gonna um, say those, those kind of interventions like i say I, I, i've used yeah, it a few times I, I find them really useful but you do they're a bit more niche in terms of your you need to kind of have a, a, a fairly appropriate diagnosis and understanding of the Yes, understand what's going on. So CPAP's quite good for heart failure in particular, it's good for. Um, but I like the, um... patients don't always like it is the other thing, I think. And if they're remotely confused or air goes in the stomach, they'll vomit it all up and aspirate, which is upsetting. <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. I like the, the help pillow thing. I, 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 I've got to say, I think there's, there's, there must be a niche for us to have some sort there of There is a niche. That you can I feel like up. we should patent this concept. Yeah, maybe we should do that before I, uh, before I put this out. Yeah. <laughs> um, we should come up with a, a better name as well, I reckon. Yeah. But in terms of, like I say, there's, there's benefits in terms of airway management, but airway management, but obviously um, with ventilation and potentially with safer mobilisation and a bit of ramping. Yeah. But no, yeah. that's good. I think that's a, it's a good kind of take-home point as well to, to wrap up with is this thing about um, these kind of simple techniques. And, and like you say, um positioning and, and posture is, is so important to yeah it's so key so like all my failed airways all the bosses ever really come in and done and like push their pillow a bit different or change their head position or like with the the bigger ones you know ramp them up more um yeah I just think it's totally underrated as like a thing and it helps us out so I'm sure it must be more useful pre-hospital where everything is suboptimal in terms of positioning because you're like in stairs or whatever anyway so perfect yeah nice one let's um let's patent something <laughs> let's do it <laughs> nice one um, that's all the kind of questions and topics I had to to go over um mm -hmm. so yeah and no, I appreciate you going through those um before we wrap up have you got any kind of final comments or suggestions or, or anything that you think might be useful for us uh no not really i think it's probably more useful for me to go out and do some proper pre-hospital uh, but enjoy the <laughs> enjoy the events medicine um but yeah i just think there's it's a real shame that i think paramedics don't get more time in theaters or aren't always like prioritized in theaters because i think there's a lot of useful tips and it's really good for us to be pragmatic as well because actually sometimes our equipment just isn't there particularly in covid like, there'll just be whole areas of the hospital you're not allowed to take stuff into mm. 
so you're back to sort of more of your sort of clinical judgment and acumen but I think that doesn't mean that like everyone doesn't have something really useful that you know hospitals can share and paramedics can share and I think we're all looking after the same patient just at different stages of the pathway and and like you said I think it's so beneficial it's, it's certainly it's something I noticed during my undergraduate degree we did so many placements in um I guess because we're kind of a non-specialist kind of generalist people or like professionals as paramedics i spent time with all you know like mental health and theaters yeah and you just work everywhere and then you don't see i think for the, the people you meet in hospital don't spend a lot of time outside of hospital and it you kind of feel bad because we're benefiting from everyone else's um knowledge but uh it doesn't really go the other way a lot of the time yeah i learned so much from my brother like even before he was thames like you're just there's something you're very like pragmatic people and you're very good at like risk assessment you know my problem is that everyone that comes to me is like seriously ill (laughs) so my automatic assumption is that something disastrous has befallen you so my ability to like leave someone at home without medical like admission is nil like (laughs) yeah I mean to be fair mine has tailed off a lot since doing the critical care job it changes (laughs) your threshold doesn't it totally changes your threshold exactly but yeah no, no, nice one. Well, I appreciate you coming on. It's it's been really useful to speak. Hopefully, um, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Hopefully, it's useful for listeners, and we didn't go too too niche with some of the discussion. Um, but yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll stick some stuff in in the notes that are, um, some kind of background reading and stuff. And if you've got anything that's that's useful, please do send that over, and I'll stick it in the notes. I'm sure I can find a diagram or two from my favourite books. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. It's lovely to talk. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.